Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. A result that very few, if anyone, saw coming. Welsh Labour, once described by Richard Wynne Jones as the UK's most invincible election winning machine, defied the odds once again. And rather than going backwards after 22 years in government, they moved forward, ending the night on a record equaling 30 seats. But is it just Labour success that makes this result so remarkable? It appears finally that Wales has become a distinct polity, a unique political space. No longer is it for Wales see England. To discuss this and everything else that happened on Senev 21 result night, we have Richard. Hey, Matt. And we've got Kerry Davis. Kerry Davis, who we all must applaud, by the way, for uh, saving his deposit, getting a fantastic 1,500 votes in Cardiff Central. Hello, Mr. Davis. I think it was slightly more than 1,500 there, Matt. Is it 1,522 or something like that? Uh, it was definitely over 1,500. 5% <laughs> deposit, deposit, deposit claimed. And I, I understand that there were quite a few votes uh, mistakenly put for Callum Davis rather than myself. So I, I, so I feel I was slightly uh, underrepresented. But no, hey. good, good. Evening, chance. <laughs> Evening, mate. You should have come third. You should have come third. You'll, you'll, you'll claim that forever. So let's start with that. Let's start with the big news. Uh, Kerry, you were talking to us before about Labour uh, and their result in this election. What were the stats you found? Yeah, so um, research for Hiraith Pod found that uh, I'd say it was the best night for Labour in the history of the Senate. I think vote-wise, um, on the constituency vote, it's 43,000 more than their record in 2011. So they're up to 443,000 in the constituency. Previous best was 401. On the regional list, previous best was 361k back in 99. This year, it was over 400k. You know, we're talking some big numbers, and that, that's not just the, the emergence of 16 and 17-year-olds. That's a real return to a lot of long-term Labour voters coming home. Rich, it looks like Labour were about 600 votes away from getting a, a majority something we'd never, never saw coming. And when we were talking yesterday, you, you said it felt almost like 97. It felt like a Labour Party that could win anywhere. Were you shocked to see this result? Uh, well, if uh, anyone listens back to our back catalogue, you'll see that my prediction for the result was very nearly spot on. Um, I had 29 for Labour and it turned out to be 30. But it, it is evident that Labour had not only a very good night, just as a matter of fact, but also a far better night than was anticipated by most people. It had the sensation of uh, being a tidal wave, and it, that's why it felt like 97 to me. It felt like there was something happening, a hitherto undetected, you know, groundswell of support for the Labour Party that swept, you know, pretty much everything in front of it. And I think it was, um, there's no way that it, it could not be seen as a very good night for the Labour Party in Wales, and also a couple of other spots in England, obviously the, the Metro Mayors in London and Andy Burnham in Manchester. What made it really interesting, and we'll no doubt talk about this more in a moment, is the fact that it was a great night for Labour in Wales, but a terrible night for Labour in England. And um, I think that that's going to prove an interesting situation as time moves forward. So you're, you're our Labour, you're our resident Labour insider, Matt. So what's yeah. the inside line on the Labour result? Great result. A lot of people I know are in absolute shock happy shock but shock it's felt really weird rich to be perfectly honest you know uh if you compare how it felt on the door this time around compared to 2019 it's night and day not only because most of the door knocking we did in 2019 was done in the pitch black of night because it was december but it's absolutely 
completely changed. Gone is the animosity that we felt as a consequence of Brexit, Corbyn, depending on who you decide to blame on Labour's failure in 2019. It just, it just evaporated. It just didn't feel like that at all. And, uh, you know, most Labour people have got themselves in such a defeatist state of mind after the last few years of everything seeming to go wrong, every election we have seeming to lose them, that I don't think many people felt like it was going to happen. And even when other people have talked to Mark Drakeford, you know, he said that it feels really good and you don't want to believe how good it felt. And that's how it felt to us. I was out in uh, Newport West on polling day and it felt great. It felt really nice to be out, pleasant to talk to people. People, as, as, as guests on this pod would have said to us before, people seem really happy to talk to you. And not just because they've got someone to talk to, because they're quite happy to see Labour people again. And it's so confusing, to be perfectly honest, because we're just not used to it in the last few years. So as good as it felt, we almost couldn't believe it. And even when the results were coming in, it didn't seem to line up. And one of the key things that I think is surprising about it is that the seats that we all thought were going to come under a lot of pressure from the Conservatives, you know, more than anybody else, the Newport seats, um, the North East, uh, Delhin, Wrexham and so on, you know, those majorities were quite healthy quite extraordinary and you do realize of course this means that we can talk about the m4 for the next five years on this pod without any problems <laughs> i think the conservatives will be deeply disappointed with that and i mean we'll get into that in a bit more i'm sure in a bit but they they were expecting to sweep those seats that they took in 2019 or, or came very close to taking and they were expecting a much better night than they eventually had not not even saying they had a bad night the conservatives had a very good night but i think they were expecting to take the bridget maybe not bridge end but take the Delians and Wrexhams and uh, Allen and D sides or, or, or maybe even one of the Newport seats. I think they felt confident they could do that, but all those, or especially, the, and, the, and the Bailey Grimm organ as well, and they, and they felt like they could take those seats. And most of those seats came back with bigger majorities. And if not bigger majorities than they had last time, certainly bigger majorities than Labour had in the 2019 election. So in terms of the Conservatives beating Labour, that didn't happen this time. I don't think anyone really expected the Conservatives to beat Labour. I think that's been a little bit of comms from certain Labour voices since yesterday, but based on one poll back in the distant past that kind of suggested Labour uh, Conservatives were slightly ahead. And I don't think anyone realistically took that seriously. And I, I, I think the Conservatives might have liked to have broken through in some of those spaces, but I, I think they'll generally be really happy as well. I think they did make progress might be through a little bit of gritted teeth that they could have done better. But with, they're clearly now the second party in Wales. Their figures on vote share and vote numbers, uh, I haven't got them in front of me, but were really healthy again. You know, we're talking about a clear demarcation now, and I don't think we've mentioned our third party yet. I think that's what we have to look at. I think that's probably the biggest surprise of the night. I think certainly in our social media bubbles, I think we weren't we all expecting a greater performance from Plyde? Yeah, I mean, I, just going back one second on what I said about beating uh, Labour, I don't ever think that anyone thought they would beat them in terms of seats, but I, what I meant was that they would be able to beat Labour back. They would be able to beat them in seats. And what you actually ended up seeing was that the Conservative vote share went up 5%, 
but so did the Labour vote share. And that sort of cancelled out anything uh, that, you know, anything good the Tories could have had on the night. I mean, yeah, they took the veil of Cloyd off Labour. But that's, I think, more to do with the fact that Anne Jones stood down. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard from people uh, from the Vale of Cloyd that, it, you know, the, the ground game wasn't as good. There's lots of reasons why that's the case, why, they, why we ended up losing the Vale of Cloyd. I mean, but if you look in places like um, Priscelli Pems and Marlon South, we nearly, beat, we nearly won those seats. We certainly made heavy, heavy inroads in towards taking them next time. It's the Drake for Bounce. It's the Drake for Bounce. But <laughs> on Plaid, going back to Plaid, yeah, it must be hugely, hugely gutting for Plaid. If not now, when, hey? But certainly it's not happened now. I, I know I'm not, I'm not a Plaid member, so I can't speak with much authority about how it feels, but they must be hugely gutted to lose someone like Leanne. Rich, what do you think? Is it, is it, was that one of the particularly hard bits of yesterday for you? You can almost treat the loss of the Ronda and the loss of Leanne uh, as separate from the overall election result because that was the top Labour's target seat because, um, you know, because of the nature of when she won it in 2016. And, you know, as, as you'll recall from the prediction part, the manifesto part, you know, I, I always thought she would hold it based on her, you know, her stature, basically. It turns out that things move on. And time passes and and the Ronda had moved on as well and I don't necessarily think that the result in the Ronda is connected to the result across the country because since uh, Leanne uh, lost the leadership to Adam Price a few years ago I think that quite clearly she's not had she's not been the lodestar that she was and the interesting thing of course is if you speak to a lot of the new uh, members of the senate who will be standing in plaid cymru an awful lot of them from the south and west will say well i got into politics or i started campaigning for plaid because of leanne wood and it's it's really interesting to think about what her legacy will be that's for another pod the result that plaid cymru had um you know again i will uh, you know, not to brag too much, but it was very close to what I predicted. And I think if most people were honest with you, I think it's probably what the party would have, very close to what the party would have expected. There was hype. Of course there was hype. But I don't think anybody, and I particularly will um, call back to our previous pod with Cathy um, and Neris of Derin. I don't think that a cold-eyed viewer, observer of Welsh politics would have expected Ply Cymru to do better than what they did, maybe by more than a seat or two at best. The reason for that being largely that the focus on independence as a key campaign plank was definitely exciting for a huge number of people on social media. But Cathy was quite right. What will people vote for? you're not necessarily going to win over Labour voters or long-standing Labour supporters, even if they are sympathetic. And as we know, there are an awful lot of them that are sympathetic to, if not independence, then you know, near total autonomy for Wales. But the decision that someone makes is based on all manner of other factors. And independence is not the salient factor that it is in Scotland. And uh, as a result, I think, yes, there will be disappointment in the party that they didn't do better. I don't think many people will feel that they would have done a lot better. I think expectations would have been maybe a couple more seats than they had and keeping the Ronda. But there will definitely be some very hard conversations behind the scenes. And I think that that's many of those conversations will be in within Adam Price's circle. 
because his leadership was largely staked on his personal qualities and his determination to push the independence agenda as the top item in the campaign. And, you know, with reflection, maybe that wasn't the greatest strategic move, but he's going to have to reflect on that. And his team will be responsible for thinking about what happens next. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if they do change strategy somewhat in terms of looking towards the next Senate election, if he stays in post. On that strategy point, Rich, it's very interesting, isn't it, to see about Clyde's strategy. From the outside, it looked as though they were desperate to try and get that 51% of Labour voters who claimed to be supporting independence. And that was their primary target demo at the beginning. This is why they went so heavy on independence. Very quickly, they realised that those Labour voters who support independence are fundamentally Labour voters. They're socialists who believe in uh, more self-determination for Wales. And I think that he realised probably too late that those people weren't going to switch to Plaid Cymru. They were still going to vote Labour. Uh, and they changed their tack to talk more about the other issues, the bread and butter issues in their manifesto. But by then, it was already too late. And the overarching media narrative about them was that they were talking exclusively about the Constitution. And I think there's a lot of parallels here to be drawn with Labour campaigns. Adam himself said, I want to invoke the spirit of 1945, Labour in 1945. But to me, it reminds me an awful lot of Labour in 2019. A, a hugely, in, a huge manifesto with lots of things that people claim to be undeliverable uh, and unaccounted for financially. They may be popular as individual policies, but as Labour found out in 2019, that doesn't mean as a cohesive whole, they're sellable. And it also doesn't mean that because they're popular and you think your leader was popular, maybe that's a difference from Labour in 2019. But you have to be able to make people buy the fact of the party that's selling them. And I think most Labour voters couldn't buy into Plaid. They couldn't buy into Plaid as the party who could sell those ideas, who could implement those policies. Again, another comparison that you, I, I feel very strongly with, with 2019 is that I feel that a lot of Plaid, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this, a lot of Plaid members are, are, are dumbfounded about how this incredibly progressive, radical policy platform wasn't picked up by the voters. But what we had to realise in Labour, and maybe we still haven't realised it, but I think it's one of the most important things, is that says more about you as a party than it does about the electorate. You know, in 2019, we were taking on an incompetent, corrupt, conservative government, and still the UK electorate picked them over Labour. And that says more about Labour than it does about the electorate. And I think this is a perfect example of that again. This result says more about Plaid and people's perception of Plaid than it does about the electorate. I think that's a perfectly fair analogy, actually. I think that you you can see the through line there. Are you, the, the qualities of the leader are, you know, if not different, then I would say potentially the inverse. Um, I think that's probably fair. But the point is correct. Inevitably, we'll see an awful lot of criticism of the Plaid Cymru uh, campaign, not just from people like Chris Bryant, who are obviously oozing smugness um, about the, uh, the recapture of the Ronda. But what I think is going to go unremarked on is that Plaid Cymru have been more or less static in terms of their support now since 2003. You know, it's gone up and down, fluctuated a little bit. And 
when they elected Leanne as leader, it was a gamble. And the idea was, we're going to try this thing. It's a big gamble. Ply Cymru has never done anything like this before, but we need to find a way to break out of our, our current electoral grouping and find new voters. They tried it. It worked to a modest degree, but it wasn't a breakthrough moment. What Adam and the leadership of the party did in this election was to gamble again. And what try something that Ply Cymru has never tried before, which is to say, we're going to run a campaign explicitly on independence, and we've never done that before. We think there's a good chance that we'll be able to peel off some of those Labour voters. And they had no data to suggest otherwise, that it wouldn't work. They thought, we'll give it a good go. And they did it. And, you know, sometimes you try something that has never been tried before, and it doesn't work. And, you know, you, you, you can sort of look back at it with hindsight and maybe say, well, maybe there were signs there. But you can only do that with hindsight. I mean, that's, you know, maybe they should get Keir Starmer in to uh, help with that. But, but really, what they needed to do was to try something to try and reach new voters. They tried this. It, this wasn't the answer. So they'll have to try something else. But I think they did have to try. At one point, there was, had to be a Ply Cymru campaign that put independence in the centre this felt like a moment. And in another world where the pandemic hadn't had the effect of bulwarking the Labour administration, where Mark Drakeford looked a lot weaker, in a much weaker position before the pandemic, but also that the momentum that had come from all of those Yes Cymru events over 2018, 2019, if that had continued to build, you can see a universe in which actually this campaign may have had a very different result. But it didn't happen. And sometimes, as Theo Davis Lewis wrote for the Hiraith blog recently, sometimes you have to be a lucky general. And I think the planets align for Mark Drakeford and the Labour Party in this election like they haven't previously. Although, yes, there will be criticism. I think Plyde had to try this. I suspect we won't see it again, but I did th do think they had to try it. We were talking about uh, Nettley and Aberconwy, you know, did any of us expect it to be as wide a margin? You know, congratulations to Lee. He and Mark Drakeford's 57 visits there uh, really turned things, you know, to what was the most competitive marginal in 22 years of Welsh politics is now a clear Labour hold. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, the biggest swing, or the joint biggest swing, was was the Ronda again. And I, I, I mean... I, I predicted that Labour would win it, but I don't think we predicted that Labour would win it by such a such a big such a big margin. The equal swing to that is one that you will probably have many thoughts about, Kerry. The joint largest swing of the night was Liberal Democrat to Conservative in Brecon and Radnorshire. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened there? Just a little bit. I would just say I was really shocked. Really shocked. I. I've... We, I think you know but when we've talked about it, we thought it was going to be close, but it was a huge swing, wasn't it? I think Kirsty's 8,000 majority was turned into a 4,000 Conservative majority. So fair play to James. We've had him on the pod. Wasn't one I was expecting. Um, I think it could have gone Conservative, but to have a 4,000 uh, majority, and I think that kind of power is now clearly conservative in every sense of the word and um by some margin and i find that not difficult but uh it is surprising from growing up in brecon and radnor where it was um strangely 
uh, parents and fat grandparents who were, it was a Labour seat, Brecon and Radnor. Then it was a, a li liberal stronghold. So to see it move into conservative and be a strong conservative it is is a strange place to be. It's a bad, it's indicative of the bad night the Liberal Democrats had, or I mean, all across Wales really, but especially in the Mid and West region. I mean, I was talking to you both the whole way through yesterday, and they came third in Montgomeryshire, very very distant second in BNR, came fourth in Ceredigion. See that although they haven't held it ever at a Senate level, they did hold the. Westminster level until 2017 and I thought they did bad coming third in the general election in, in 2019 but to come fourth in a devolved election in Ceredigion for the Liberal Democrats is is appalling and they were they were getting uh, very very few votes in the Priscilla and Carmarthen seats either so I mean a terrible terrible night for the Liberal Democrats in their usual heartlands wasn't it Rich? Uh, it's very difficult to see what the future is for the Liberal Democrats I Although they did manage to uh, take the fourth seat and very you know, dramatically, I would say, prevent a Labour majority uh, government for the first time in the history of the Senate uh, on Mid and West Wales with the election of Jane Dodds, who isn't a universally popular figure among the Liberal Democrats themselves, which I think is probably contributing to maybe the, um, the sense of gloom, despite returning the same number of MSs that they had in the previous Senate. The number of people um, who have both worked for the party, campaigned for the party and represented the party who are now essentially floating voters. You know, these are people who don't know what the Liberal Democrats stand for. What is the argument that you make as a Liberal Democrat in a constituency like Cardiff Central or Ceredigion, um, as you mentioned, Matt? What in, even is liberalism in in 21st century Wales. As Cathy was saying in our pod before the election, what is the significant point of difference? Why would you vote for a Lib Dem in Cardiff ahead of a Labour member? It's almost difficult to talk about them as a party because essentially now they have one Senate member for the next assembly, the next Senate term, and the party below that, there's very few, very few councillors compared to what they used to be. They're not a party of local government anymore. Where I live in Pontypridd, uh, on the regional list, they got less than a thousand votes uh, here in Pontypridd. It's it's devastating. And I think to follow on your point, what comes next? What comes next in POIS? Um, who is going to be the party that challenges uh, the Conservatives in POIS in the future? I don't know. Very interesting. I think that I, I think in a way, it's very difficult to talk with respect about the Lib Dems at the moment because you almost feel like it's funereal. Um, and I, I, I think we, we'd have to wish Jane well for whatever comes in the next Senate, but there is a distinct chance that she might be the last Liberal the Senate ever sees. I think we've got to put a little bit of perspective on it. We're, we're talking around the, the Senate with 60 members, and I think it's been dominated, I think hindsight will say, around COVID and the exposure Labour have got and the handling of whether you think it was a well-handled response to you know, the major kind of issue along with climate change of our lifetimes and you know I think we'd agree it has it has been good but the Liberals and the basis that they can real build back on similarly for the Greens and other parties is based in that local administration and organisation and you have still got good people from the Liberals around so Brecon and Radnor 
the local infrastructure is still there. They may have lost at a Senate level. They'll be looking to rebuild at next year's local government. Similarly in Cardiff, I think Rodney Berman in my constituency still, while he went backwards, there were still 9,000 votes, I think. There's, there's still appetite for that. And I think big-ticket items which influence the public are still to play out for the rest of this year. The, the outcome from COVID, you know, at the moment, it's kind of everything seems quite level but the once furlough and the support mechanisms disappear once brexit kicks in you know who's going to be picking up the pieces from some of these massive massive political issues and that's something for all other parties to play on so but looking at next next year's local elections that's going to tell you where these parties are in a little bit more detail there are a lot of candidates for the liberal party still out there and they've got pockets of strength to build from one of the things I think we've got to touch on from yesterday, whatever the surprise is, and it's something I think we at Heroith, and certainly why I like working with you two, it's about getting the civic voice for Wales to a greater extent. And I was really disappointed that we didn't really see any kind of major move on the turnout. If anything, um, 47%. That's not really engagement now after 22 years by the vast majority. And some of the figures, when you look at the constituencies, where there was very little to play for, Swansea East was down at 35%. takes a little bit of the legitimacy away from some of this. And even the big turnouts, which were Brecon and Radnor, we've talked about, and Cardiff North, didn't even get to 60%. You know, and and they had big ticket items at play. So that, that, for me, is probably... While it was great for a lot of other reasons, I, I find that really continually disappointing, but we're not managing to engage. And I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I understand 16 to 17-year-olds, which should have been something all parties and the administration really try to engage with. I don't, I don't think the figures there are going to be that good. No, you sort of hope that the government prepare for this next time, introduce more civics, and that in five years' time, people are more aware and more engaged at a younger age about Welsh politics and know the particulars. But speaking about particulars of Wales, Rich, do you think this shows that there is now a particular Welsh polity? Do you think we are a distinct political space now? Over the years, one of the interesting pieces of data analysis that uh, Roger Roger Iwan Scully has done is the indices of difference between the different home nations. And one of the things, if you track elections back, um, Wales has always been different to England, but it has largely followed the same pattern, but it has been shifted to the left. So the, the, the waves of support for the larger parties has been largely similar, but it's just been tilted leftwards by a few percentage points. Scotland was very similar to England until late in the, um, uh, late in the 20th century, and particularly over the last 10 or 15 years, has completely gone off in its own course. This is the first election, I think, where we've seen Wales take a completely different turn to England. England is turning right quite clearly all across the entire country, from you know the southeast all the way up to the northwest. And Wales is turning left at the same time. As many people will have observed, the percentage of parliamentarians representing parties of the left or centre-left in Wales is as high in Wales as it is in Scotland. 
you know, it, and that is a complete contrast to Westminster. It may be a blip. I think that's one of the things we can sometimes feel like things are uh, permanent when we're in the moment, but it may be a blip. But I think what we've also seen with the Senev expunging or with the Welsh public expunging the contrarian right from the Senev, you know, it feels like that nationalistic, heart, you know, kind of right wing, quite frankly, very nasty element that started to really bubble to the surface around 2015 with the rise of the Farage-led UKIP party with Trump and everything like that. It feels like the fever may have broken. And if that is the case, I think that's something that we should celebrate. In my opinion, I think the real winner of this election was the polity of Wales. And I think that's a really positive message that we can take forward when we start to talk about what the potential for the next Senate election should be. As, as I mentioned polls earlier, I think it's the same again. I think you can't take a one-off occasion and take from that. I, you know, I've done a lot of research in my time and I always like kind of like three points of reference to build up a baseline. So I know that's an easy way out, but certainly uh, on Thursday, Friday, Welsh politics is different to what we saw happening in England in terms of where, where Labour were. Um, and I think that's probably... As Rich said, not going to repeat that. That's different to what we've seen in the past. Whether that will continue going forward, you know, we'll have to wait and see. It's really going to have to be future elections to really see if that that's been a, a major change. But I'm sure we'll come back to it later this year, looking at Labour in England with something which is going to be really interesting. Matt, Matt, can I ask you a question? Because one of the things that we talked about a lot over the last year is how, despite the Labour Party as a whole feeling that 2019 was a terrible election. The Labour Party has still won in Wales. It still had the most seats in Wales. The party in the centre is losing, but the party in Wales is winning and the party in Manchester is winning. Although you could argue maybe it's the personality, the person in Manchester is winning. But I don't think I've ever seen London-based journalists saying that Labour in London should look to Labour in Cardiff and try and learn the lessons before. I don't think I've ever seen that. That feels like it feels like a breakthrough moment. It feels almost like Labour in Wales has come of age and all of the, you know, the, the, the years, if not decades, of being completely ignored by the likes of The Guardian, etc. It's like a, a light bulb has gone off and they're like, oh, wow, yeah, Labour's quite popular in Wales. We should learn from that. I mean, the Labour government in Wales can now drink in the United States, so it's about time. Uh, and I, I mean, the left in England have got to look somewhere, otherwise they'd just be looking down at their feet depressed all the time, you know? They may as well look look over the seven and see what we're doing right here, because, yeah, we do win. And I think you can tell the real difference between the 2017 and 2019 elections in Wales because of the amount of control that Welsh Labour had over one and amount, the amount of influence that the Westminster Party had over the other. In 2017, Carwin Jones was the face of the campaign. In 2019, uh, it was mandated from, well, Southside, that Jeremy Corbyn would be the most prominent figure in our campaign. And we lost seats as a consequence. So it's good that, you know, Southside are finally looking uh, to South Cardiff uh, to get a bit of inspiration for what's actually happening here and how you how you win. And I think what it is, is, and we've talked about this a huge amount, so I won't go into too much detail, but it's about creating a, 
about creating a relevant identity, a relevant space for yourself. It's about making people feel as though they can still vote for you, as though they st still believe in the same things as you. And I think one of the major problems that Labour in England have is that the people who traditionally voted Labour in sort of ex-industrial towns don't necessarily feel that the modern English Labour Party are for them. And we've talked to John Denham, et cetera, and it maybe it's because of how poorly Labour in the UK deal with their English identity. It's because they fail to create a progressive English identity. We can, we've talked about before about whether that exists or not, whatever. But what Wales has done, what Welsh Labour has done, is it's made it synonymous. They've not done what Scottish Labour done and sacrificed the flag to the SNP. Here, it is okay to be Welsh. It's okay to be left-wing and Labour. Some will very much disagree. I know I can hear the shouts coming now. You can do it. You can attach yourself to that feeling of being Welsh and progressive and voting Labour still. And I think in England, they are caught between a rock and a hard place because they don't want to talk about Englishness because they view it as some sort of Emily Thornberry resignation tweet in waiting. And they struggle with Britishness because people don't actually feel British in most of the places they're losing. So what they need to do is they need to create an inclusivity of that view. They need to, they need to embrace national identity in a way that they have really, really struggled to this point to do. And I, I think if they take one lesson from Welsh Labour, it's don't be afraid of the flag, but don't make it the only thing you talk about. That is a very, very key message, I think. Um, and I, I think I'm sure there are thousands of listeners in uh, in London and elsewhere will, will listen. Um, it's it's still it's still interesting though about why I think there's only a f the the results in England for Labour it shows that I think Labour people are voting Conservative. Was, does that happen still in Wales and certain parts of England, like Merseyside? That kind of natural, I, I'll vote for anyone except the Conservatives. Has that link been broken in vast swathes now of those kind of post-industrial towns in England? I mean, I don't want to speak for the Socialist Republic of Liverpool, which, you know, most of them wouldn't consider themselves English anyway. Voting is like muscle memory. You do it again and again and again, and you do the same thing again and again and again, because you, you go into the polling station, you pick up your ballot paper, you know where the box is, you cross the box with the rows on it, you post it in the uh, ballot box, and then you go. The most important thing for opposition parties to do is to break the muscle memory, is to make you forget what you're doing when you get into that box and make you think about it when you put your cross in it. And if you can do that once, if you can stop people voting Labour once, you can do it again. And I think that's what the Conservatives have successfully done, is using Brexit as a wedge, they've stopped people voting Labour once. And now there's a danger that the muscle memory is working the other way and people will just continue to vote Conservative. Interesting. I mean, that, I find that really interesting. But one of the, the observations that's been made all over, particularly in South Wales East, is that former UKIP voters 
have now come back to Labour in a number of places. It's inescapable that the cultural dynamic plays a part in Wales as well. And to, to Welsh Labour's advantage is that the long-standing view of the Conservatives as the English party in Wales, which predates the Labour Party, of course, because that was the same argument that the old Liberal Party used to make in the 19th century against the Conservatives, is still there. And actually it's been accentuated by, as John Denham would say, um, an Anglo-centric Anglo British nationalist like Boris Johnson essentially being the stereotypical English toff. You know, th there is, um, uh, you know, something about that image which puts off Welsh voters, certainly Welsh voters of the left. So what might be a persuasive issue, you know, a Union Jack waving, you know, gunboat sending, uh, Churchill quoting Johnson might go down well in, I don't know, Middlesbrough, but it's not going to go down well in Tonopandi. And we've learned that in Wales. The, the challenge for English Labour, of course, is to find out, well, what is the opposite to that? What is the, the wedge that will split people away from that and, and make them choose a more progressive um, in English Labour identity, whatever that might be? Um, I think, you know, it is, it, is a, it is a challenge that is unenviable, I think, for the other uh, Labour parties on Britain. You know, Scottish Labour have their own travails at the moment, of course. Um, but I think one of the things that the Labour Party in London could probably do is, as a starting point, at the very least, is actually recognise that they have this problem and that this problem is the one that they need to solve. Because Welsh Labour will look after itself. Right. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, for joining us this evening. Where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at uh, Mimosa Cymru. Mr Davis? Still carry the Viking, Matthew? Fantastic. It's I got would a five percent after his name on the Twitter handle. I mean, if you if you got elected and, and not kept that, I would have been thoroughly disappointed. <laughs> it, um, it'd stay it stay in. How can you do it? I've been told it's unprofessional, but you know, it's it's what makes you Harry the Viking MS would be amazing. Amazing, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll, um, I'll tell I'll tell you the story one day about why it is Kerry the Viking. <laughs> Uh, where are you on Twitter, Matt? I am at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101. If you enjoy what we do here at Hereife, please don't forget to find us at Medium, at Hereife Book Cymru, on Facebook, at Hereife Book Cymru, and on Twitter, at Hereife Blog. Before we go, we want to uh, say thank you and congratulations to the whole heap of people we have had on this podcast in the last year. But we especially want to say congratulations to the people who found themselves elected to the Stened last night. So we'll do it in no particular order, but thank you very much to Luke Fletcher, Sarah Murphy, James Evans, Mike Hedges, Devith Jewell, Lee Waters, Jeremy Miles, Mick Antonou, Jane Dodds, Evan David, Adam Price, Andrew Arty Davis, and um, a little guy called Mark Drakeford. I don't know if anyone's heard of him, though. Nerdy professor. <laughs> but, we, but thank God. <laughs> and, and, and can we sympathise with those who, um, who have guested on the pod and were unsuccessful? Being a candidate is one of the most gruelling, difficult, but entirely brave and um, challenging things that you can do in your life. And uh, I know as somebody in the past who's knocked a lot of doors and delivered a lot of leaflets and still has the scarred fingers from various dogs and letterboxes over the years. Um, it's, it's a heck of a thing to do. For those who were successful and those who were unsuccessful, doff caps all around. You know, it's a it's a great effort. And um, if you weren't successful this time, hopefully you'll you'll come back fighting in in the next one. Unless you standing for abolish the Welsh Assembly, in which case please go away and never come back again. Absolutely, and I think the reason we do this 
is for civic engagement and engagement with public life. And uh, everyone who does that can be applauded. And I think, you know, all our gratitude goes out to them. The end of Neil Hamilton has been forecast many times in the past, and I'm still here. Oil Vower, Neil. Oil Vower. Bye, Neil.